Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis. I'm Dr. Matt Varis, and this is Episode 6 with Dr. Tyler Cooper. Now, Tyler and I met in grad school, and he was in the same program as me. Again, uh, he's a couple years ahead. And he really has a really deep understanding of stem cells and stem cell biology. And so I learned a lot from him about those things in grad school. And he really has a super interesting skill set. So we talk about stem cells and that sort of biology. And, but first and foremost, how he got interested in science and what science means to him. It really is uh, more than just trying to memorize things from a textbook, but contribute back to the body of human knowledge. And uh, Tyler has other interests outside of the sort of hardcore benchwork in biology. He's also interested in cryptocurrencies, specifically how they can be used to sort of fund the scientific process in new and interesting ways, can create new and better incentives in areas that don't really exist currently. So I think he has some really cool ideas that we really try and flesh out over sort of the second half of the podcast. And I thought that was super intriguing and hope to continue talking to him more about it. He's also sort of continued on into a postdoc. Um, so he's finished up his PhD and has been learning an extra technique called proteomics, which is a new sort of technology in biology. So we touch on that just a little bit. But if any of that sounds of interest, then enjoy. If not, Hopefully one of the future episodes will be of interest. Thanks. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for doing this with me. How's it going? It's going great. How about you? Pretty well. You know, there's uh, company things that we got to wrap up, end of year goals and things like that. So a little chaotic the last couple of weeks, but can't complain. Things are still right on. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, we're just we're just uh, bracing ourselves for winter up here in the north. So, uh, you know, getting ready for that. But other than that, everything's going well. Yeah. Good luck with that. I mean, I... I definitely did not miss the winter last year, so I'm looking forward to this one as well. But again, thanks thanks for doing this with me. I really appreciate it, and uh, I always love having guests that I kind of know and that you know, not just do one thing like you're a scientist, a doctor, but also have other interests and can really think through the problems that are going on in the world as well. And so I'd love to have this conversation. I think I'll just start off with how do we know each other in your words. Yeah. Yeah. So we both went to Western together, both did our PhDs there. You were working in Dr. Sagan's lab, who, who is a very close associate to Dr. Hess, who was my supervisor at the time. We've interacted, I guess, through, through uh, you know, friends as well as, as uh, you know, groups within the university. So, yeah, kind of going from there. And I think the last time we, we met, we were actually in Jalouz-Wajab looking at proteomics and then possibly, yeah, yeah, so you had been doing proteomics experiments. And so I was just starting to dabbling with my experience on there and, and shift my, uh, my research interests laterally. Right. Yeah. Well, how's, how's that been going? Have you mastered proteomics? Would you say? Yeah, that's been, uh, it's been a, an exciting journey. I mean, like it's, it's, um, proteomics has been amazing and I, I've been blessed to have the opportunity to, to, experience the field and, and and see what technologies are coming on the forefront i think is what most is, is what most exciting i mean I'm, I'm just a small fish in a pond when it comes to right. proteomics but i mean it's great to be able to use it for the projects i need or even to facilitate some of the collaborations i've been involved with over the last several years yeah yeah would, it, would you just quickly be able to explain to the non sort of biology people what proteomics is yeah, so proteomics in a nutshell is is akin to what would be genomics so instead of the study of dna we're studying uh, proteins. 
And so if you can think of it in a broad sense, it would essentially be fingerprinting the, the proteomic or the protein profile of a giving uh, sample. So this could be anything from bacteria to blood to tissues to whatever you name it <laughs> that has protein in it. And so, yeah, using different methods, we're able to essentially either break those proteins down and, and analyze them and build them back up. And then again, kind of just identify every given protein that would be, be in a sample. Yeah. And it's extremely promising, I think, as we also develop like these large cohorts of humans as well, we can start doing proteomics on blood, for instance, by finding these so-called biomarkers for all different kinds of diseases and things like that. So I think that in combination with other technologies that are being sort of pooled together, I think uh, science is really exciting here in the next decade, I would say. For, for sure. Yeah, we, we've been really kind of uh, immersed in the single cell transcriptomic world, right? Like, you know, it's all been RNA and DNA and, and single cell proteomics is, I think, what's going to be kind of the next wave that pushes science, science to uh, the, the next you know, level, if you would, in terms of, of discovery. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. And, I, and like single cell sequencing, I remember the first time I heard about it, I think I probably saw like a science alert or like IFL science or something like that. And it was a, a paper of DropSeq, the first paper on DropSeq, which is a group out of the Broad Institute. And it was just them describing how they isolated, isolated single cells in oil droplets. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. I just remember reading it and being like, like you can like feel that this is transformative. And so like, as soon as I saw it, I just like sat down and like, I was, I told my roommate, like, I need to use your computer right now, like to have two screens up and stuff like that. He had like this command station at home. And I just sat down for like two hours, read the whole paper, read all their supplements and everything. And I was like, this is going to be a thing. And then I tried to like talk about it with my colleagues and stuff. And they're like, yeah, it's really cool. But like, there's no traction to use that my PhD or anything like that, right? But, uh, you know, I may be able to get to use that where I'm at now. So really promising technology that I think is just redefining how we think of, like, biology of, of uh, organisms, right? Like, what we thought a, a cell type is, is being redefined. I think you can either say there's uh, a gradient of cell types, or there's way more cell types than we thought initially. But you know, biology is a lot richer, I think, than we thought. Yeah, I think that's, I agree with that point, is that we have to start thinking along a gradient instead of, of binary steps or, you know, uh, integral steps along the way. And I, the single cell technologies are, that are coming out are, are definitely showing that that's the case, is, is how fluid cells can be in, in terms of their phenotype and, and function, really. Yeah, and it's like, it, it has me thinking about cells, like, kind of in like a, personifying them, I, mean, I think. We kind of do that for simplicity's sake sometimes, but to make sense of it, like I th I'm sure you think of this because your background in stem cells and differentiation and things, but like I think about being the cell and like what signals am I experiencing and how is that changing the direction I'm moving, something like that, right? Where you can see even cells sort of trans differentiate over their life cycle and that, that kind of thing. So I, I think it's, it's all super cool, but I, I'm a big science nerd. Oh, I, I'm with you. I, you know, it's always funny because I, I think I, I've had your your previous supervisor uh, poke fun at me for some of my personifications of cells in, in, in our advisor committee meetings. And and so, you know, uh, I, I studied uh, mesenchymal stromal cells a lot in my PhD. And that was one thing I kind of 
coined was this platypus paradox, was that if you look at one end of the cell, you're, you're looking at a duck. And if you're looking at the end of, end of the cell, you're looking possibly, you know, at a beaver or a dog. And, and you know, again, it really takes this big picture of, of, well, let's look at the proteome, the transcriptome and everything to really understand what cell type we're looking at. And I mean, to extend that further, you know, personifying cells even further, right? You start to talk about, you know, taking a human of any given DNA background and putting them in different environments, you're going to get a different human in the end, right? And so that's 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 how we think about cells. And I mean, I, I argued this forever because growing cells on 2D plastic to me was like, we're, we're doing prison experiments with cells. We might as well just call it what it is. <laughs> we might as well call it what it is, right? And I mean, it's it's led to great discoveries because it's simple, it's, it's, it's high throughput, it's robust. But I mean, uh, it, it misses some of those key elements that, that we haven't necessarily captured yet with, with the data we've been able to, to, to um, acquire. For sure. It's like we're, we're working in this very small artificial sliver that we can actually look at, but it, it misses that like broad diversity and like the interplay, the dynamic interplay uh, between cells and molecules over time. But, you know, as technology grows, hopefully we can read a little more into that. For sure. Yeah. The technology and, and the, uh, the computation as well. And, you know, the, the Bitcoin phrase, machine learning and AI, right? That's always what's going to come save us as, as scientists. But, you know, uh, no, all jokes aside, this, it's, it's, it's going to be exciting over the next 10 years in, in research. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, the, the future looks bright in science. And I know both you and I can see where it's going. But I'm curious, like, when can you say or like, when can you look back and say, I got interested in science? Was it like an event that happened? Was it a gradual thing? Did you kind of like always orient that way as a kid that kind of thing? Yeah, I, th- I would I would have to say I was just born into it and, and, and not to be like cheeky, but like my, my, my dad was a veterinarian and my mom was a nurse. So like it was like, you know, dinner talk with science and, and they were divorced. But even though didn't matter what house I was in, everything was either what's happening in the hospital for humans or what's happening in the hospital for animals. Right. And I mean, I remember being, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight and, and getting to be in the surgery room with my dad and watching him do some really cool really cool surgeries. I mean, uh, the, the one that comes to my mind is, is a, is a dachshund that had a bone tumor in its jaw. And so he removed the jaw bone and actually took out part of the bone of, of the iliac and the hip and reshaped it to kind of give this dog bone structure within its face. And I'm, and I'm, you know, eight, nine at the time. And I'm like, man, this is cool. Like, like this is what I want to do. Right. And, and so you know, I kind of grew up and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm interested in science, you know, maybe I want to be a veterinarian, um, you know, kind of then jumped in, maybe I want to be a medical doctor, different things along the way. Um, but, you know, that kind of that core, like science is what kind of already always drove me or what always had me curious, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, always questioning why things happen, what things are made of, you know, um, if, if we do this, what happens, you know, pushing buttons, good and bad, right? <laughs> got me in trouble, got me in trouble sometimes, but, you know, uh, generally overall, like, you know, experimenting with life was, was kind of, I guess my, my, my thing growing up. And, and so going into university, um, I actually thought I wanted to be a zoo vet. I thought it would be so cool to be like, Hey, I came home today and did a C-section on a tiger, right. Or, you know, something like that. Right. Just, just something like where, where, you know, it was just so exotic that like every day was, was unique. And, um, 
you know, so I always had this mindset of being in science and, you know, life to me, for me kind of took a, took a strong turn and that happened. And I'll, I'm happy to share the story, but my first day of university, my brother actually passed away. Um, coming to meet me at the university, motorcycle accident, um, right, right here in London. So this was something, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, why, why I say this is this is what progressed me in, into research was, you know, he had a, uh, the main thing that did it was, was the spinal cord uh, severization. So he basically uh, disconnected, you know, spinal cord, the cervix. And, you know, at the time, me and my dad and my brother actually were already looking into stem cells and how they could be used for animals, particularly for animals that have been hit by cars or kind of this idea again, spinal cord regeneration and, and the way that the universe kind of shaped me in. Um, my brother had this, this terrible accident where, where, you know, eventually passed, but um, from it, it kind of almost was like an epiphany, if you would. Right. And, and it's something like a, like a strong push to like, this is what your life, this is what you need to do. Right. Or, or this is what's missing life. And, and at the time it was stem cells and, and, it's changed from them, but that was really the, the, the key starting point was, in theory, stem cells could fix this type of injury, right? If we can regrow the tissue, we can regrow the cells, we can fix an injury. And that's a very naive thought, but at the time, you know, that was the cope, right? That was, that was a way to kind of cope with it. It was like, there's nothing we could have done, but, you know, hey, I'm going to try to help the next person, right? Or, or this, here's the problem, let's solve it, right? So got stronger, you know, got even stronger invested in the stem cells, um, biology, really getting into to cellular biology throughout my undergrad. And it wasn't until third year, whenever I started to take some lab courses and it was like, okay, like I, I can, I kind of see the, the, the fun of this now, right? Like, you know, I, this isn't necessarily implementing the theory this is like really how you discover the theory and and i've always kind of given you know it's a really cheeky like <clears throat> example but you know you have lawmakers that that make the laws and you have police officers that enforce them and in some sense research is is the lawmakers and then you have the medical community who kind of enforces these concepts so this was again my my second turning point in my life where i was like i like the hands-on aspect of research and it was it was such a stupid experiment, like when I look back at it, but it was so cool. And, I, and, and so it was essentially what we did was we hot glued a moth to a, a rotating pole. And so this moth would fly in a circle for an hour, okay? And we would take the lymph out of the moth and we were performing basically chromatography or mass spectrometry on the lymph of moths that have flown for an hour and moths that have resettled for an hour. And it was just really like, you know, biochemistry, you know, whatever, simple lab course. But it was like, okay, this this is cool. Like I can kind of see this where this is going, right? I can kind of see, I want to do this. What if what if I did this? What if we did this? You know, you can kind of start seeing my mind race and, and this, you know, as as a scientist, you're like, okay, this experiment's done. Here's the other five I want to do. And so I kind of got a bug, if you would, or bitten by the research bug, where I'm like, okay, like I, I like this. I like this puzzle solving. I like this really critical thinking where I can be really creative right and really try to answer my problems through creative solutions and so <clears throat> this led on through undergrad i took more courses and then it was really my one of my last years of, of undergrad where i met david hess who was my phd supervisor 
who taught a stem cell course. And at the time it was like, okay, well, finally, I, I finally, my first stem cell course, right? Like it took me four years to get here. Like I want to learn about stem cells. And so I started to learn about them. He's doing stuff for diabetes and vascular research. I think stem cells are cool. And going back to the single cell technology at the time, I was, you know, he was presenting flow cytometry and that was blowing my mind. Like we, we can analyze single cells with antibodies and like through a laser and, you know, whoa, side scatter. And I'm like, it's, it's cool to, you know, and I think that's what's fascinating really, really. And, and so that took me where I was like, okay, you know, maybe this is my opportunity. And, you know, I didn't have research experience at the time. And I think this is, a, you know, what a lot of people have problems with is, is not everybody is able to dedicate a summer to doing research or volunteering research. Like I worked, I worked full time as a cook throughout my whole undergrad, right. To help pay for that. And so where I had these skills of time management and high demand and, you know, like I always kind of say cooking's a lot like science, right? You're just swapping out ingredients. It's like yeah. that. It's, it's chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. It was no, no research prof was going to take me necessarily serious when it was like, Oh, you haven't, you haven't volunteered anywhere yet. Oh, you don't know how the pipe at or you don't whatever. And so I was fortunate enough that I kind of, uh, got to talk to David in person for missing class for some reason. I can't remember the story now. But long story short, we started talking about his research. And I said, hey, you know, it'd be really cool if, if you were able to take these mesenchymal stem cells and use them to stimulate tissue regeneration in a, in a spinal cord injury. And he said, hey, you know, what are you, what are you doing for a thesis? Or are you doing a thesis? And I said, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but sure. Yeah, why not? Like, you know, like this is what I'm looking for. This is exactly what I'm looking for. So, and so that, that led into a fourth year thesis and, and, you know, that's what kind of then bled into a PhD, but I mean, that's what really got me into research itself. And, and I would say, as soon as I entered the lab, as soon as I entered the, the PhD program or even the thesis program, it's like, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And they, and I guess you, you know, as much as you know, this, you know, that there's people that, that kind of transition through research science. It's a good experience for them before they move on to anything else. And then there's people like you or I that they're just like, hey, this is this is my life. Like, you know, academic industri industry, it doesn't matter. There's something that's just in your core that's like, I have an answer that's never going to, or I have a question that's never going to be answered, right? It's an addiction that never gets filled, right? You know? Yeah, it's so, like a scratch you can never yeah. itch. Yeah, you're, you're always chasing, you're chasing this like research high of like, oh yeah, you know, and it never comes. And, but I mean, we love it. We love like spinning on the hamster wheel. And I mean, it's great. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating because we conduct it with like this naive sense of, of, of imperfect or perfection, right? Like, like we're, we're perfect humans that can execute this research perfectly. And, and everything we, we discover is, is set in stone, right? And this was something I think that kind of like led me where I am now with my research was all throughout my PhD, especially in the stem cell field was trying to pick up a paper and like recapitulate its results, right? Like uh, reproduce its results, right? You don't get the same results, but it's because you didn't use the same media or you, you didn't do this, right? And it's always one reagent that, that you can point it to or, or that somebody can point it to, right? And to me, that kind of like, uh, it got a little bit frustrating after a while, but I mean, that that's where it was also like, okay, well, let's let's start to establish our own standards right if you would right and so let's let's not take necessarily what we're told and say this is hard or in fact more so you you take any scientific paper as advice right you don't take it as as fact necessarily it's advice 
until it's really proven across a large scale, if you would. So <clears throat> why I'm telling this story is, is because a lot of my PhD was around transplanting adult stem cells, either hematopoietic stem cells or mesenchymal stem cells. And in this, we were trying to stimulate islets for diabetes or beta cell regeneration, or we were trying to stimulate vascular regeneration. And so I had an interesting project where essentially I was trying to conserve a stem cell phenotype as we expanded it ex vivo. So we're trying to get more cells while retaining this like tissue regenerative phenotype that we think is this potent cell population, because that's, that's how it is coming out of the body. As I'm progressing through my research and, and I start to transplant these cells, it's like, hey, it's, it's not the cells with the stem cell characteristics that are giving us this tissue regeneration. It's actually this other population that is. And, and I was like, I was like, man, this is, this is strange. Like this is some, some, you know, am I doing something wrong? Right. I'm a second year PhD student. Of course I'm doing, of course it's me. You know, I, I, like, I'll just, no, I mean, that's, that's it. Right. You're, you're terrified. You're like, okay, like, have I done something wrong? Like, you know, you're, you're, you're telling your supervisor this, your advising committee this, and they're just like, ah, we don't know, Tyler. Like, uh, maybe you want to do some follow-up experiments. Right. That's what you got to do. There's always... <laughs> that's what leads to the rest of the experiments. And this is what leads to it. Yeah, this is what leads to it. And this is where scientific collaboration is going to be kind of this Excalibur or, or saving grace amongst research. And, and I think the more we embrace it and decentralize it is really a big word I'll use. Is It's, it's going to be, it just, it leads to things that we hadn't necessarily thought of before. And so why, so going back to the story is that this is what led me into proteomics. And so I, you know, you, you knew Milion uh, Kujan at the time. And so, I, you know, we were friends and I said, hey, you know, would you mind running these samples for me? This is what I think we should happen. No, the results don't come back like that. And, and you're like, did you switch the tubes? Like, like, what's going on? How does this machine even work? Should I just give up my PhD? Like, am, I'm a complete loss, right? I'm a complete loss. And I mean, so I get this big list back of, of you know, 5,000, 6,000 proteins that are identified in both cell groups. And there's at least a thousand of them that are changing, right? Well, this is before, you know, I'm, I, before I picked up any type of like Python coding or anything where I was like, okay, I'm going to be able to process this data really efficiently. I did the manual looking through Excel, picking one protein out, going on gene card, looking that up. And so what I ended up seeing is, is this kind of pattern of, of megakaryocytes coming out. And if you don't know what these cells are, these are the cells that make platelets. And so what I was seeing was actually my stem cells were acquiring a megakaryocyte phenotype. And what I hypothesized, I guess, was that they were in some sense either making platelets or, or making at least uh, factors that were tissue regenerative, right? And so that's kind of where we left, we left the story was we have... It, what is now in a, a differentiated adult cell type still showing tissue regenerative properties as potent as a stem cell type, in, at least in our model in our hands, right? And so maybe, you know, it makes you question things. It goes, okay, like, stem, are stem cells real? You know, we're going back here, are, are stem cells real? What are stem cells, you know, whatever? And, and, and so this is, again, this is my first exposure to proteomics. I get in the megakaryocytes, I start looking at the platelets, and then I hear about this thing called platelet, platelet microparticles. 
or, or platelet, platelet dust. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. And so this is this is what led me into extracellular vesicle research. If if you're into that, yeah. So so platelet dust was described back in the '60s uh, by Dr. Wolf, and and so essentially it's it's little particles that that platelets release on, on upon activation, and they're very potent proangiogenic signaling molecules. Uh, for the uh, listeners out there, they stimulate blood vessel regeneration. So this is what you you would have in a clot. Platelets come in clot. They release these particles, and these particles recruit cells that come in and restore and regenerate. So during this time, I was like, I got interested in something else that wasn't necessarily in my lab. And and you know, again, like you're you're in the middle of your PhD, and you're like, how do like how do you navigate this, right? Like, do I go to my next committee and say, hey, I want to defend my master's now, and and you know, go start somewhere else or whatever? Yeah. Fortunately, I was in a lab where I was kind of allowed to push the boundaries of what we were doing in there. And I did a lot of it through collaboration, found some experts that knew about extracellular vesicles within London. Hey, can I use your equipment? Hey, can you teach me? Just, you know, I guess show an interest. And I I really got lucky that I I didn't meet any sticklers that were like, no, get away. They, They really embraced me. And they're like, hey, somebody that's interested in these small cellular vesicles that are released and do all these cool things. Yeah, come join our cult. We'll, we'll love to have you here. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I got into that, and and uh, I mean it, that's kind of where I am now. Is is most of my research now stems around proteomics and extracellular vesicles. And so at the end of my PhD, I ended up instead of moving forward and 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 continuing stem cell research, or even uh, you know any any type of regenerative medicine, I decided to take a step lateral and and really focus my study on proteomics. Personally, for me, and I know this doesn't speak to everybody, but personally for me, I didn't feel like I came out of my PhD with enough hands-on technology experience. Like I knew flow cytometry, I knew cell culture, I knew surgical models, right? But it was like, you know, I saw the world going big data and and nothing that I was doing at the time was big data. And so, um, yeah, that's just kind of, I guess that's like a, a good part to put that is that's where I am now is, is, is fell in love with big data fell in love with uh, coding in Python. And, and now where I am is is actually, as we mentioned, using blood plasma and proteomics. So what we're doing now is taking extracellular vesicles from blood plasma and ascites fluid, and we're looking for biomarkers for ovarian cancer. So this has been a, a great project that I've had going on. Again, very collaborative project across multiple universities. But um, yeah, yeah, it's where, where I am with research as it stands. Yeah. Well, that's a great allegory, I guess. But there's there's a bunch I want to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a ramble. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's perfect. It's perfect for the podcast. I love it. I guess we'll start from the last first. Just a comment is that the world going big data is exactly how I see it and saw it. And when I was getting ready to transition from like masters to a PhD, that's when I was like, I need to do this now. So basically, I was like, I need to find a transcriptomic data set, and figure out how to analyze it and go from there. And luckily, Cheryl, Dr. Sagan, who I did my undergrad with and started a master's with, was willing to give me the reins to sort of tackle that on my own when no one really had that experience in the lab. And so I went, I went from there and very quickly wanted to do proteomics and metabolomics as well and try and integrate them together, which I knew wasn't really done at the time, but I figured... By the time I can run it, the analysis will have caught up. 
and it's it kind of did in some respects, but it's not where I thought it would be. It's very difficult to integrate all these data sets, and the, you know that that comes from like processing the tissue, how the what you need to use to get the analytes out that you want to look at. But I very much valued the big data, and I was kind of jealous of like comp sci people that had big data sets from like social media or something. You have like millions of data points, and you can analyze it that way. I have to go in the lab, you know, do some dissections, run some experiments to then get my data, convince my boss to do it or whatever. And then I could finally do like the computational part. So I never got that deep into the analysis. You've, you've definitely gone deeper than I have at this point. So that'll serve you really well. But also just a comment, like, like where, where I landed in industry, like the perspective of, of a skill base is different, I guess. Like most people are highly specialized on one thing. And then during their career, they'll like expand adjacent to that and they'll be like the go-to person for that. But the reason I was hired was because I did a bunch of different things. And like you, I did some animal work. I did some cell work. I did multiple omics. I analyzed a bit of imaging data myself. I did some behavioral experiments. Like all this diversity of experience is really hard to find apparently. I didn't realize that, but I think us being where we were, like in a smaller university, you know, smaller labs, not, not, not that many resources are necessarily experts doing each individual thing. You're kind of asked to do a, a breadth of things. And then if you're like, if you're a self-starter and you're motivated to perfect things or, or get it right, you can really get good at a bunch of things. So I think that's what you've done. And I think industry would love to have you, I'm sure. Um, so that's that comment. But Going back to the beginning, I think what you first said about your brother, I'm just, uh, I had no idea. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. It's, I couldn't imagine starting a university career that way. And uh, I'm just grateful for you sharing that story. And um, I think that the fact that you found that as like a, an epiphany, I think is, is worth talking about to some degree in that I think I've, I've seen this multiple times and i think it can be abstracted a little bit but when someone has like an extreme life event it could really like just focus you and like there's there's some certain things floating around i might want to do or, or whatever and then all of a sudden it's like okay now i have to do something now i'm concentrated and now you have like a direction essentially and you may not stay in that direction but you're going full speed ahead and you have some wind in your sails right and I think uh, like my sister, I think kind of got that with sort of like mental health issues at home. There's just like a bunch that happened when she was like younger. And I think she felt maybe a little helpless and couldn't do anything about it or like, or felt that she wanted to be able to help more. And then she, as soon as she was thinking about university, it was like right into like social work and sociology and things like that and wanting to work in like mental health care or like rehab and things like that. And now she's doing a master's of social work and that like carried her through, but it was because she wanted to sort of take care of her family and her friends that have had these experiences that really like knock them off their, you know, life path for a little bit. And it, it took a, a, a lot of effort and time to get them back on their, on their feet. And, and she's helped a lot of people that way. So now she wants to do that as a career essentially. But it's, it's a way of focusing and orienting yourself. But like to abstract it even more, like I think it's a similar thing for like immigrants to North America. 
they're a lot more motivated in many cases to make it, especially in America where, you know, if you get into the business world, you could really run with it. And it, and it's like this like need to do something just because you have that, that motivation driving you. I, I think like that spilled over from my dad, for instance, he had to escape Iran as a refugee and he is kind of like a stereotypical immigrant in the sense he's like, you got to make something of yourself. Like I worked my ass off so you can have a better life than me. So don't fuck up this opportunity basically. Right. And I love him. And I'm like, okay, I want to make my dad proud. And so, you know, I, I always want to do something big and he's been through a ton of shit in his life. Crazy. And so, you know, the little things that, that bother me, it's like kind of just falls off your shoulder. I think, all we can do as people is use our experiences and channel them to do something productive. And all of us have a different set of experiences and a different you know, set of genetic core, I guess. But that mixture, that diversity in humans is what allows us to move forward. Like, I don't want to be a hospice nurse, right? I don't want to be teaching kindergarten. There's plenty of things I don't want to do. I like my little science and, you know, read a bunch and, and stuff like that. I get very technical. There's plenty of things I don't do. And there's plenty of people that love to do the things that I don't want to do. And so when I think generally in the air these days, there's a lot of divisiveness and wanting to categorize people and like shun a group of people for some sort of identity. And to me, that's like, it's just not, I don't understand that perspective. Like, why do you want to take that angle? It's great we're all different. We should be celebrating that, right? And allow everyone to shine and do what they're best at and not force them to like join a group. Just be yourself. You have a collection of experiences that makes you unique and we need that in the world. So I just thought it's very, a great very example. reflective of the, the cellular composition of the human body, right? You know, we're, we're just a, a big city made of, you know, different roadways and different cell populations and everything else. And they all have to work together to survive. And, you know, it's, it's something that I, like a saying I've always used is, is evolve or go extinct. Right. And, and it doesn't matter whether it's in your personal life, your, your career life or anything, you know, take every day to, to, to improve or, or just take that one step towards a different direction than where you were. Right. Otherwise you're going to be left behind as a fossil. You're, you're just kind of, you know, caught up in it. Right. And, and, it, and again, it, it doesn't have to be science. You don't, not everybody needs to be a doctor. Not everybody needs to be an astronaut. I mean, I wish I knew how to fix a car. I would, I would save a lo- myself a lot of money, you know, yearly. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's skills out there that are just fascinating and it's really about finding your passion. And I think that's, uh, you know, that, there's a saying, right. Do, do what you love and, you know, have one job that is what you do what you love and one job is to make money or whatever. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, take the advice as you need, I guess, but I always kind of ran with that. Yeah, I th- I like the way you think that way of, you know, taking these concepts and ex- extrapolating them out. Like, you know, our cells are a microcosm of you know, what the body is, of what society is, of what, you know, of how all organisms interact on Earth and the universe. Like, it, you can get these, like, small systems, I guess, that almost, like, amplify up yeah it's it's natural it's natural biological engineering that 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 again i think this is where i went back to we're 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 so naive to think that we're perfect as humans that we don't realize that we're actually engineering ourselves right we we build computers to mimic ourselves right you know we build 
everything around us to, to be better versions of ourselves. Oh, we, we're not fast. Well, let's build a car. <laughs> you know? Oh, that horse isn't fast enough. Let's build something faster than that. Right. And, and I think that's just, uh, it, it's great. I mean, it's what makes us unique as, as a, as a species, but I mean, I guess at the same time, you could say that's, what's going to eventually lead to our downfall. Right. But, uh, who knows? <laughs> Tough to say. I have faith though. I have faith. I'm team human all the way. I think we'll figure it out. I, I think so too. I think it is, uh, you know, as much as, as things, as things tend to swing in a negative direction, there's always going to be a, a repulsion to the positive. And I, I'm a strong believer in that there's like latent ability, just like hiding in wait. Like there's certain people that don't need to take extreme stances or lead large groups of people when things are just peaceful times. But when shit hits the fan, I think there's certain people that stand up and really command attention and respect and can get things done. And then once the problem has been resolved, they can go back and relax because they don't want all that attention all the time. But I think we've seen some of those people stand up over the last couple of years. And what's great about podcasting and the internet and things like that is you can find more of those people and they're not being silenced or have to get through like a single door to get their voice heard. It's just, if they talk, they can put it out there and someone can find it and listen to it and organically things grow. So the stuff that resonates with people you know, can become popular, which has never really ever been possible. It was always sort of top down or through starting an army and taking over control and then you can decide what you want to do. So we're in this really amazing place where we have all this opportunity for people to shine and show their skill sets. But we're also at a time where for some reason, people are feeling the need to galvanize into a group identity and identify themselves by that. And I'm not sure why that's so important, but it seems to be you know, just a result of either us internally, something built in, or of how social media tilts us, I guess. But I think there's a, there's a lot we got to figure out over the next I don't know, decade or two. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, we're born into it. You know, we're probably the first generation into the, the social media era, if you would, right? You know, uh, you know, having computers at home or, you know, it went, went, went I knew MySpace, so I can, I can date myself if, if you want to. Uh, so, like, I, I use MySpace. And so that was the first social platform. And, I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to trickle from there. And as much as there's been bad from it, there's been a ton of great. And I think that's where I also am really excited about is is the idea that we are able to connect so quickly through the Internet or through technology, if you would. And uh, I, I know we wanted to transition this way, but this is what this is what probably what got me into to uh, blockchain technology and, and crypto, if you would. Right. Um, but more blockchain technology is was was this idea of how do we bring transparency from the research community to to the general public, you know, because my experience anyways, and I mean, I'll, I'll speak to myself, is, is I've experienced talking to people from many different cultures, you know, uh, southern states, you know, extreme Trump supporters, right wing, red hats, right, all the way to to your, your most left, you know, uh, liberal, whatever you want to identify again, segregate yourself in the group. But I mean, if you want to put on political spectrum, that's the kind of idea. And so why, I, you know, I say that because you have science friendly versus you typically not science friendly. And the common theme between the two is typically, I don't trust the science is, is usually what the, the typical, I don't, you know, that you'll hear between the two groups, right. For the most part. 
And so this is where I got into the idea of how do we bring transparency out, right? And, and, and got into this idea more of how would we be able to market this to the general public such that we were able to engage the public in research? Because if you're not familiar with it right now to, to everybody, right? Please now, explain because it's a please shit every show. Say, it's, a shit show. <laughs> it's a shit show. And it's, we've taken business concepts and have tried to force it into science and it is not the place for it. You know, and this is why I say that science should be decentralized. And as soon as it is, you'll see a lot more discoveries be made. Uh, crazy discoveries, maybe. So, so the way science works now, and I'll, I'll speak to, to medical research, is, is you have to be funded for your area of expertise, right? And so uh, one memory of you from, from grad school that you probably don't know is, is use the term pigeonholed one time in a, in a lecture. And I thought, pigeonholed, wow, that's a beautiful word, right? And so... You know, anyway, so this idea that that you get pigeonholed into a specific field of science, right, as a researcher, and then you get tunnel vision, right? My my research is this protein is this particular disease state with these four or five technologies that I'm able to afford within my lab, right? And so you almost become a small business at that point, right? Because that's how no they're longer... talked about by the the leadership. They literally say we have you know, 400 small business owners in the school of medicine and dentistry or something. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're essentially a small business at that point, right? You have equipment, you might have a staff, you're the boss of it. You're running your own account. You're, you know, you're, you're doing your own hiring, firing for the most part. And then you have to go and seek funds because as a researcher, you don't have a product you're selling. Your product is knowledge <laughs> and you have to convince people that you can provide knowledge. Right. And so the biggest caveat of it right now is, is you don't have to convince the people who are who are donating the money you have to or, or paying the taxes. You have to convince the people who you're competing against half the time or who are publishing in a slightly different field who may not understand your pathway because they have spent the last 15, 20 years on this pathway from receptor to transcription factor. And so. You know, I, going back to where I was, you know, if, if you're not familiar, and I'll, I'll do a little side tangent again, is, is this is what got me into blockchain technology, which is really the kind of the core technology behind Bitcoin. And the idea behind blockchain technology, or really what I think is the most fruitful aspect of it for research, is the, is the transparency aspect. That, that it's essentially a digital ledger or a digital recording of a given event that can be, that's not necessarily stored on a central hub. Okay. And so to kind of transpire that is if I own a car, there's technically a car and I sell the car, the person sells a car, sells a car, right? There's a, there's a vehicle owner history, but that vehicle owner history is only as true, you know, what's kept record of, right? And so the way blockchain technology works is every time a transaction is made is it's replicated as a block or stored within a block. And then these blocks are then copied across multiple nodes, aka multiple computers, aka multiple people or institutions, right? That are now essentially independent warehouses or storage, also verifiers of data or transactions, right? So why people are using it now for Bitcoin or for a store of value money is because you can't falsify these transactions. You can't fraud them. You can't manipulate them. You can't deface them, right? There's, there's a lot of benefits financially to it. Going back to the blockchain technology aspect of it is I, I've, I've been always 
passionate and have been working on the background of this is, is how do we then integrate this into a research ecosystem, right? And so to take this from the ground up is we want to build the most transparent, cost-efficient system possible is essentially what you'd want to replace the current system. So the, so the current system is slow, it's clunky, it's not transparent, it's centralized, it is... In the worst way possible, yeah. Yeah, it's also politically influenced. I'll stop there before I end my academic career. But, you know, you know, you go on with this and, and you hear the people that are in academia just complain about it and complain about it, right? So so let, let's build a better one. Let's not try to tinker it and switch the, the format. Let's actually build a better one, okay? So... Let's start with the funding, right? I'm a person who is Joe Schmo. I know nothing about research, but I have a strong interest, let's say, in, in space exploration, right? And and I I want to go and I go to the, the grocery store, uh, doesn't matter what it is, buy my groceries. The cashier says, hey, would you like to donate a dollar to? And then, you know, the fund is now this research ecosystem. You know, I'll keep the name disclosed for now, but there's this, we'll call it research ecosystem, okay? So, you know, whether now we're on our phone, I mean, this doesn't have to be physical dollars, be on your phone. But the idea of it is me as Joe Schmo, I'm really interested in space exploration. And so I want to contribute money to the next trip to Mars, right? I want to know that my every single penny of my dollar went to that rocket ship. And so in this blockchain technology, how beautiful would it be as a, as a consumer or as, as someone, as a, as a donor, I guess, right? That I would know my dollar went to buy screw 536 on the left wing of the spaceship. And, and so when that spaceship takes off and heads to Mars, that sentimental value, I feel, as someone who's donating and contributing to science, I'm not a rocket scientist, but man, I love space exploration, right? And and we did my little part and I can see the outcome of it. I know I, I've seen the transaction. I know my money went to where I wanted it to go. And, and that's really what is missing right now in, in some sense is that there's, again, this distrust. I don't trust the science, right? How, how do I know where my money is going, right? I, how do I know my 20 bucks is-, is well, I don't actually... trust the government to allocate it before taking a 50% cut for their salary. Yeah, yeah, and then you got to pay all the all the secretaries and everything at your at, at your institution, and then it goes down from there. And yeah, oh my God, it's it's terrible. And then we won't even get into the market of of research supplies that are just so. Anyways, so we now have our research consumer interaction, right? So how do we make a a, a perfect research experiment? Well, you know, we're always taught you need at least a a, a p or n of three, okay. So why not have the same experiment be conducted at three in institutions independent of each other, completely blinded? Institutional replicates. Institutional replicates, as well as technical replicates within those institutions, right? And so, so, so then we start to really address the, the, you know, it gets complicated what experiments do you do, but for the large part is you could funnel these into different categories, right? I'm interested in cardiovascular research that relates to diabetes does. And then maybe there's a list of potential experiments. I want to know if this drug helps with, I don't know, ischemia, right? Limb ischemia or whatever. I can donate my dollar to that. I know when the research is being done. I know all of my money has went to it because my money is on this blockchain and this transaction, this ledger is all being recorded. 
Be- beautiful. So now we have this this idea. Okay, now we have this institution. We have the the decentralization of of research, right? Of of actually conducting the research. With that, you have to then say, okay, well, let's let's now be able to then take these data and then put it into integrate it into one, right? So so no more paper publication, no more competing on peer review papers. These papers are already peer reviewed to begin with because the, the experimental design is agreed upon up front before the three institutions go in and conduct their research, right? So you're not looking to market the best story as a research experiment like we are now, right? We're not taking 20% of the research we did and figuring out how to package into one paper. We're now, we're now taking the research as its core, right? As its raw unit. And we're, we're full transparency uploading this data to not only be analyzed by, by the three institutions itself, but to be open source so that anybody can then analyze this data by themselves, right? Oh, you don't believe the COVID vaccine doesn't work? Oh my God, this this was something that, I mean, I, I started getting into this like 2016, 2017, yeah, 2017. So you're talking like four years ago. And I always joked about like, just wait, there'll be a pandemic that comes or whatever. Like there'll be some big catastrophic event that will make people want to trust science more. And and this is going to be the Kickstarter. I mean, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm over my head, but, you know, so so you get this big collection of data. That's beautiful for us scientists. We love the big data, as we talked about. We can explore this for days. We can then you, we can do metadata analysis. We can do AI in the background, you know, because these experiments are, again, designed such that they're transferable, I guess is the word I'll use. But like if I did a Western blot on a protein or I did a particular measurement on a protein, that measurement or that experiment could then be used in comparison to a completely different experiment that's also looking at that protein. It, it, you know, maybe that's Western blot's a bad idea, but I mean, like a bad example, but you, you kind of get the idea, like, like single cell analyses, maybe, or, or, you know, the, the larger only datas. Yeah. Right? The data is start- deposited and then you can do with it what you need. Essentially. Correct. You can, you can also merge them because we say, Hey, we have experimental layouts where we're looking at the same tissue populations, whatever, even if this experiment was done five years later, whatever it happens to be. Okay. So that's, that's great for us as scientists. That's great for us as data people. How do you then keep the people engaged, right? And and this was something that that I always kind of struggled with whenever I was coming up with this idea, you know, years ago and, and presenting it to to entrepreneur courses and whatever have you. And so I, I thought of the idea of like like a sports center thing, like or or something, even just a friendly email of something that would be simplified back to the donor. Hey, this study is completed. Here's the results, here's what we learned from it. Thank you for your contribution. Something that kept them engaged, right? And, you know, now, now that I'm here four years later, and I don't know if you're familiar with like NFTs, right? These, these non-fungible tokens yeah, that everybody's I, into. I have a great example of this that I think makes what you're talking about almost inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you would essentially then get into being able to own the data in some sense, right? You would have some type of ownership as a donor over this data. So if it does lead to some type of cure or whatever, again, these, these cures aren't necessarily mobbed by 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 a big industry necessarily like it, it can be more cost effective down the road for some of these drugs right so that that was kind of the the main idea then and then it kind of got into some other ideas of like you know we have kickstarter and so i the same kind of transparency reporting idea that like let's say i needed a fifty thousand dollar microscope 
man, it's hard to get a CFI grant to get a $50,000 microscope. But man, it would be pretty simple to go and get $1 from 50,000 people off a Kickstarter for a microscope. Yeah, right? very like, tangible like, thing. Like, yeah, I need like, this. If I have it, I can do this. And here's like, here's okay. why. Yeah, here's why, right? And so you, then you start to talk about confocal images and, you know, like, again, like, it's beautiful. Like, it's a beautiful way to say, hey, I contributed to this image because I contributed to this scientist buying this microscope, right? We're such, like egocentric creatures that like even as a as i mean even as a donor even as as someone who's not a research scientist why wouldn't you then want to even showcase what you're interested in within research hey i actually contributed to this research project that led to this cure that's pretty cool right like you know you know even it's like being (laughs) being like a retail investor in the stock market or something and like you know i bet on tesla and it went you know to a trillion that kind of thing right same level of excitement. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so you, you kind of just get that that connection between the science community and, and the general public. And, and, you know, again, taking it away from this, this centralized business of, you know, collection of small business, really institutional shopping malls, if you would, right? Like we're, we're one lab after the other and let's completely like decentralize research, right? No longer independent lab. I'm, I'm part of, of this institute that has this collection of knowledge. And therefore, if we need these questions answered as a scientific community, we need to know COVID vaccines are safe. All right, well, let's find three of the greatest epidemiologists. Let's find three of the greatest virologists. Let's find, you know, let's find three independent experts and, and have them really... I guess, oversee these experiments, you know, as, as we kind of just talked about. So, you know, the, the idea is raw. I mean, but it's, it's uh, something that, that, I don't know, something I guess I'm passionate about it and you kind of run with it as, as I move on forward. Yeah. I remember you talking a little bit about this. It must have been at least two years ago now at the grad club. Yeah. Think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would have been. I think, Mil- <laughs> I think Milian came to visit actually. And we yeah, it would have been maybe his years. PhD defense. Yeah, I do remember this conversation and, and talking about this. So this would have been several years ago. This kind of idea started trickling in my head. And Yeah, it's definitely more developed because I remember asking some hard questions on purpose to you because I like the idea, but there's some real hurdles to cross, right? Like just talking about it, it sounds like there's just a lot of infrastructure to build, right? That, that's what it would be, right? And so I'm, I'm one, one person, you know, and, and I mean, like, I can come up with this idea and say, this is what needs to happen. But to go and write the script, to, 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 to do the data management, to build, I mean, I didn't get into it, but to build the hardware that you're able to then, like, have better supply chain management within the labs, you know, it's crazy to me, we're not like, there's not like a QR scanner where I can like, know I have a certain media bottle in my fridge or like, my lab in- inventory is not digitalized. I mean, there's nothing that's routinely used across many labs yet. I just find that that's kind of, we're still a little prehistoric in, in terms of some of the technology and, and research that could make us more efficient, right? QR labels on, on a media bottle, I scan the media bottle, I weigh it. I, you know, There's something a way to kind of keep track of how much volume you're using from a given lot bottle, right? Or a, a bottle, you know what I'm saying? Right? Things like that, right? So I always look at it as like, like, I think you're right that things will move to a different paradigm. I, I have no idea the time scale it will take. It probably won't happen until millennials are sort of in 
positions of authority across the board. It's, I think it's just a mind, like a mindset thing you got to wrap your head around. Like, there's no way some 75 year old prof that's about to retire is going to change the way he does everything, right? Or or her. So you know, it'll take some time, but like, where can you start? Would be the question, right? And so I I want to bring up the example of uh, Do you know David Sinclair? So he's probably the preeminent longevity researcher in the world, has a lab at Harvard. I'm pretty sure it was him that just sold an NFT to fund a research project in his lab very recently. I think it was last week or something. So it's already beginning to happen, right? In that sort of way. Like I've, I think there was one prof in the intervertebral disc field that was trying to get alternative funding for his lab because he wasn't having luck with the grants. So he was trying to build a company on the side that was like a media company, like he made his own disc specific media or something. I don't know how that's working out. That's a tough way to start. But the point was that having an alternative financial resource is really valuable because a lot of research programs are going to have their peaks and valleys, right? That not only affects that PI, like the person that's running the lab, it affects who they can hire, right? And like they're taking a, a PhD student along this ride, right? Or they can't afford to hire a master student until they're you know, on the upside again, right? So it's difficult. But um, I really love that that has actually happened. An NFT has been sold explicitly for the purpose of supporting research. So I think having a marketplace for that where there, you can just start by matching to a project that a PI has already sort of nominated out there, I think is like a very low bar to start. Yeah, yeah. It's very low hanging fruit. And I mean, again, like, I present this as an international thing, but I mean, this is something that, that, that could start, you know, nationally, right? Like this is, you know, or even provincially statewise, you know, for the, for the U S listeners. But I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I don't, maybe it won't head necessarily the direction I envision it. Obviously not. It's going to be a little bit deviant, but I, we're, we're becoming more and more social creatures really is what it is. Right. And, and as you mentioned, it's going to take our generation to be kind of in that full power only because our whole lives has been technology, you know, our whole lives has been has has been evolving our mindsets to be able to adapt and and utilize and I guess like achieve our goals by utilizing technology. You know, it's it's not all bare bones anymore. So I don't think it matters any profession you're doing. You're you're using some type of technology when it comes down to it at the end of the day. Yeah, and and there's countless examples of industries just being transformed by some novel technology and these yeah. days often it's, it's ai or ml and or crypto right and those two work really well together on top of it so what you can do from it is so exciting to me like for me i envision a uh, social media being decentralized on that platform being able to pay by attention to your favorite people or whatever right and then yeah is it it's here. It's here. Yeah. So there's a, there's a decentralized YouTube. Oh, I'm going to forget what it's even called. Oh, is um, that um, Odyssey? Is that what you're talking about? I haven't heard of Odyssey. I've heard of, uh, yeah. I'm going to forget the name now, but there's, there's a uh, brave browser is supposed right. to be like yeah. a decentralized Google right. Chrome. Well, yeah, uh, Bra brave is where I got the idea for a, like paying with attention. Cause they have the basic attention token. Yeah. Which is, I thought was fucking amazing. Like, it gives the opportunity, like, 
you know, you're liking a post, but that like yeah. could be worth money to that yeah. person, right? But it could yeah. be a micro pay payment. It could be like a fraction of a penny, theoretically, right? It could be any amount you want. I think there's there's tipping bots on Twitter. Like the Twitter hasn't integrated it completely yet, but you can code to tip with Bitcoin and Ethereum. It will be soon. Like I, I will tell you like that there's enough. Twitter is already in crypto and they're going to be, so I don't know if you know, like you're going to be able to present your NFT as your display picture. And so instead of having a blue check mark, you have a check mark or something that shows that it's an original NFT. Like it's not a screenshot of the NFT. You own whatever it is, that crypto punk, that whatever image it happens to be. And so again, getting into this idea of kind of flaunting off what you're invested in or flaunting off your life experience or what you've contributed to. I mean, we're already doing it with Instagram and pictures. It's a matter of time before we really start to say, hey, look what I've been a part of or look what I invest in or, you know, whatever happens to be no different than showing off art or a nice car. Right, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 here in terms of that. I think it's just how do you figure it out? And then what's the legality of it when it comes to tax season? I guess it's probably where, where most things are held up. Right. Like, you know, do you make a living off of Twitter? Like, can someone make a living off of Twitter? Just tweeting all day and getting and getting paid for it. Yeah. But we already have those questions coming up where I, it's looking like the government wants to call it contractors. But, like, even journalists moving to, like, Substack, where, like, you can just have your own audience that supports you and you can say fuck off to the New York Times that is forcing you to publish certain headlines, right? Like, it's my my favorite news to consume now is breaking points with crystal and sager i don't know if you know that show but they were doing a program called the hill it was a youtube based news show uh democrat leading but their claim to fame i guess was that one of the hosts crystal is democrat and the other one sager is a republican and they both talk about the same issues so every issue that's brought up you kind of see two sides which is unheard of essentially especially these days like the news networks used to bring in a little more of the opposing views to talk about now it just doesn't happen but then they were up for like a contract renewal or something at the hill and they wanted to like expand their youtube presence because those were the numbers that were growing and the hill was like no we're doing a tv show and the youtube audience is not our priority and they're like well we want to do that anyway so they just left and they started their own youtube show and now they're getting like way more views than the typical news media. And it's all them. And it's all through paying subscribers. They're not even doing ads. So like they're not even influenced that way, which they're trying to keep it that way. It's just like yeah, paying people for your knowledge, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's that engagement of, of I want something that's transparent and I believe in, right? I want, I want that trust. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I look for independent news sources. I, I try to stay away from mainstream media. On the same talking point, though, I, I follow, you know, know, know your enemy, right? And so I follow people I don't necessarily agree with on Twitter as well, too. I want to I want to know what they're saying. I want to know what their views are when something's happening and, and just to kind of have that perspective. Sometimes it's nice to contrast. Media is a, a, a scary thing, you know, and, and, and as we get into this world, like it's, you know, the idea of a social pathogen is just something like it's not I would say terrifying, but it's something that I think is has become even more prominent, right? And what I mean by that is, how long does it take one idea to be instilled before it spreads across the world, right? Or, or you know, you know, Gad Sad? Uh, no, he's a professor at I think Concordia. Is that Montreal? I think it's Montreal. And uh, 
He's an evolutionary psychologist. And he, he wrote a book called The Parasitic Mind, the, the mind pathogens that are infecting our, our society or something like that. But it, it, this was published two or three years ago. And it was like, it was basically highlighting all of sort of the postmodernist fields that have now deeply ingrained into society, like critical race theory, things like that that he saw happening in academia, because that's where it all started. And he could see like the profs sort of adopting these ideologies and like forcing other people to align with them. Or it's like me versus you, build their teams and things like that. And so he published a book and then that was around the same time Jordan Peterson blew up. And then basically everything in that book has unfolded now, like a huge magnitude during the pandemic, so much has been virtual now, but like, this is a thing. Like, people study this. Like, it's it's not just us that have noticed it. It's um, and it is scary, right? This guy took the approach where he can he tried to give sort of like cures for each of the mind pathogens that you could be infected by. So he's like, this is your vaccine to the to the parasitic mind. Essentially, um, I was reading his book. So I like him a lot too, and he's. Uh, He's got like a little YouTube presence as well. And he's a, a big troll on Twitter, which I find really funny. Fair enough. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I'll kind of loop this full circle because I think this comes back to what we talked about is, is you know, going back to the blockchain technology, and I'll tell a really cool story about this, is because I, I, I again, tend to try not to be a conspiracy theorist, right, as, as much as possible. You know, again, I'm heavily invested in, in blockchain technology for years, right? And one thing that started catching me was was – late 2019 or early 2020 was I started seeing journalists publish their, their articles on the Ethereum blockchain. So again, this, this digital ledger where this cannot be defaced, it can't be destroyed. It's now decentralized. It's across the world. And so these were Chinese reporters starting to report on a flu that was spreading in China at the time. And now that we know it as COVID and this was this was crazy to me, and I I, mean, I, mean, I remember you know reading this, and I'm seeing these this this video, and I'm reading this article that's published on this blockchain, and I said like you know I don't know maybe this is real, this could be a gag or whatever, there, but there's videos attached with it that are in the hospitals there. I had this, no idea that existed. How do you find there, that shit? I'll, I'll have to look. I'll have to dig, dig deep, and then I'll mail it your way because there was a video with a prominent doctor over there too, who eventually died during this pandemic, who was saying, prepare yourselves. Like, you know, this is something that we're not ready for. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna like, I, I kind of like got worried about this for a bit, right? I started to say like, you know, okay, more and more is coming real, kind of kept my eye on it for a bit and then started seeing it actually start to hit a little bit of mainstream media. Oh, hey, there's this virus possibly over in China, right? This is like, December, January by this point. And so me and my family, or at least my family, I was like, hey, you know, I, I just something's not sitting right. Like, you know, I think like it's a matter of time. Like this is now real. This went from from a journal article to now this is confirmed. Oh man, this is a matter of time before this is this is here, if not already here, right? And so we kind of started to prepare a bit. We didn't go and hoard toilet paper by any means, but we we just kind of like, you know, mentally prepare, right? Like we're kind of like, okay, like what would we need if things went down? You know, like what would we do? Like what, what, what did we think we would 
what would happen, right? And kind of just keeping an eye on it. And so, yeah, anyways, it's going full circle with that is, is it, it really just emphasizes this idea of, of transparent research and, and, and not, you know, being able to trust like, like what you're told, right. Or, or what's out there in the world, because I could have easily have just said, Hey, this is something, this is conspiracy theorist idea. I'm done with this. Right. Or whatever. And, and I, and I did for the most part until you start to see it pop up. And yeah, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with the story other than to say like, you know, there's a lot more information out there than sometimes where we can actually gain exposure to. And, and it's really a lot of the time dampened by, all the garbage that is put out on, on the internet, right? Like you can, you can Google, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we had this fun the other week was can, can coffee make you go blind? Right. And you can get articles that tell you coffee can make you go blind. Does coffee improve your eyesight? Articles that tell you coffee improves your eyesight. Right. So again, someone who's not in the research community, where do you start? Where do you put your trust? Right. And, and going back to this idea of, of some type of, decentralized research entity that you believe in because of how it's structured. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, the dream. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have some follow-ups now. A couple of things that just clicked. First of all, if we had this system and people had to go through it, then I could check what the fuck eco health Alliance has been up to the last four or five years, which seems super fucking shady. That's my first thing. And then second is, you know, so that's one of the benefits of a blockchain and transparency. Another one kind of that just was applicable from the beginning that I also recognized was just deeds like to land can be put on there. That's a really obvious transfer from like the real world to digital. It's like it's better if it's digital, actually, and it could be verified and no one can fuck with it. So that should just happen instantly in my mind. But the reason why that's applicable is because, like I said, my dad had to escape Iran when there was an Islamic revolution in the 70s. And part of that, because it was like a religious ideology, any religion that wasn't Islam got banished. And since it was a religious autocracy, they could just take the land out of anyone that wasn't Muslim. And my dad's family wasn't Muslim. So they just swallowed it. So my dad had to leave the country and their family lost everything they had. And that was because, what can they say? That's mine. No, it's the government's now. And there's no record of you know them owning it and then the government taking over, over ownership. Like, sure, maybe that can happen. You still have you know, a war leader that's going to take what they want. But people can always verify on the blockchain that there was an original owner, so that was taken by force, and you can backtrack if you want in the future or something like that. So I think it's highly relevant, and like I don't see how it won't be incorporated in the future. It just seems like it's a natural progression to me. It, it is. It's a natural progression of the internet as as we know it, and and you know, again, it will answer questions like who who invented CRISPR first, right? You know, you can settle that argument and that debate. Or, I mean, better yet, but then you, you start to say, like, any technology is going to bring the annoying stuff as well, too. And so some of the stuff that's been out there that I'm kind of like, okay, here we go, car payments. So cars on the blockchain, you miss a car payment and you default, you default, you default. Well, now the, the company can override your car such that you can't get in, right? Or, or this this idea of, like, a rental car or whatever happens. So there's 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 kind of, like, 
there's some aspects to it where you're like, okay, again, like any technology, it's, it's going to have its bads. But yeah, again, for the most part, like we were talking about, it's going to be integrated. And it's going to be something that most people don't even notice. You know, I, I don't remember when debit cards came around or, or when I started tapping <laughs> my card. I kind of just like, yeah, as long as I remember now, I've been doing it. Right. And so um, it, it's one of those technologies. You don't even think twice about it. I, I still don't know how my card chip reader works, you know, I, but I, I pay for my coffee every day that same way. Right. So, yeah, I'm just going with that. Yep. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see how it develops. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what's going to happen in the new year with Ethereum because they're transferring transitioning to proof of stake right are you aware of that at all because i haven't really followed it i just yeah, know what's so happening i think that's i think that has happened i think it's it's i mean not not fully i don't think you can go completely staking yet i know that the the original blockchain still exists i, I think I'll they're gonna fork out. it in the new year yeah yeah they're forking it to a proof of stake that's supposed to make it more energy efficient right so so <laughs> simply put Proof of there's proof of work, which is essentially turning electricity computational power into that block, into that digital ledger, right? Proof of stake is everybody puts half of what they own or a portion of what they own into the pot. And that distribution of wealth or that distribution of control, if you would, right? Like if it's control of a company, you're essentially ensuring nobody has 51% control or say over, you know, the chain, right? If you would. So it makes it more energy efficient. It's going to make it faster. It will make some of these transaction fees lower. I'm, I'm more into the Ethereum competitor, if you will, and which is, which is Cardano. And it speaks to me more because they're backed by traditional research. So publishing papers out of MIT all around the world. So they, they go from the research up of let's actually research some of this cryptography, publish papers on it, and build our blockchain that way instead of this kind of uh, build and fix mentality that Ethereum has had along the way, right? Which is where they find themselves at proof of, of having the fork now, the proof of stake. So we can go on this for another hour, but I mean, like, you're essentially now talking about Apple versus Microsoft, right? You're talking about two different big giants trying to essentially accomplish the same thing, right? And there's enough room to accomplish what, what is out there, exactly what these guys are trying to accomplish, right? You know, you can have gaming, digital identities like NFTs on Ethereum, whereas then you can have Cardano, who is more focused into government bodies. So one of the big projects they have is I think in a month or two, you'll have a million Ethiopian students with all of their student records digitalized on the blockchain. So preventing uh, diploma fraud, kind of this this idea that you're you know if you went to university you can prove that I actually took a course in biology or I have the credentials right you know um, you hear this all the time people come from other countries their credentials aren't necessarily recognized so this this is an idea right can we get our credentials me as a scientist me as my expertise me as a student whatever digitalized in some type of again identification system. That, that that's just you know tra- or not transparent but that's the wrong word but like um anonymous but yet but but yeah yet, like obviously effective in some sense yeah i'm obviously losing the word yeah, it's ver- verifiable verifiable there you go that's the word i'm looking for yeah verifiable so uh you start to talk about like they're they're doing kind of two different things and and you know i i tend to trend to the things i i like more like like gaming's cool like nfts are cool i like like big picture let's let's like fix society so 
Cardano is one of them. There's some other ones. Like I won't start name dropping coins in case somebody goes and buys them. But, <laughs> but you know, the, the, again, going back to blockchain technology is food tracing. Okay, so Cardano is doing Cardano is doing beef tracing from cows within Wyoming, and you can see I had this cow that was butchered on this date, and I know that my steak was kept at four degrees because I have a digital record of the refrigerator the whole trip in the truck, right? There, this is happening on the other side of the world already to a larger scale through a company called VeChain, who is doing wine, meat, seafood from all the way from France to Australia, up to Singapore to China. So they're probably going to control the Asian market. You know, you'll have somebody control the North American market. And so that's why I say like you, a lot of these will, there'll be enough room for some of these technologies to coexist, right? But anyways, going back to that is, is I'm more interested in, again, how do you use this technology to solve bigger problems, right? Food traceability, vaccine traceability is a big one, right? Can we prove that these, these drugs aren't counterfeit? This is obviously a big problem within our, like, our uh, you know, Western culture. But I mean, you start to look into second, third world countries, this, this becomes a problem, right? Counterfeit drugs, counterfeit food. Yeah. And also the government's just fucking with everything, ownership or currency, right? Like, so, you know, it's currency. So not, not the most diverse way to look at crypto, but, you know, Ecuador adopting it as a actual currency is incredible, right? Like they can now avoid inflation by just being in a separate currency. It's nuts. Yeah. They were, they were the same, like they were similar to Lebanon, right? Like a U.S. backed, U.S. dollar backed country. Right. And so you're saying you're starting to look over at America and you're saying, well, hey, that, that dollar's not buying the same loaf of bread it used to. Right. And so uh, you start to look elsewhere and, and I'm good for El Salvador. I mean, yeah, utilize the volcanoes they have there to, to generate geothermal electricity to mine Bitcoin. It's 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 beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Beautiful to see governments progress like that. I mean, you see Texas starting to happen. Right. Like Texas is starting to boom. But really cheap energy there so they're saying hey bring on the crypto mining we're, we're you know we're ready to profit off of it right and uh yeah i think it's it's just i don't know i go on for days about but about investing but i mean that's something that i think everybody should be somewhat aware of right is 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 you know how much is your dollar going to buy 10 years from now you know stop looking stop looking at what can you afford today and start kind of really questioning what am i going to be afford five 10 years from now. I mean, we've, we've seen it over this last year, like inflation gone up, right? Massively. And so... Just in the last two months. Just in the last two months. I mean, and, and big things coming out across the news, um, you know, like uh, China, not, a, not an economic powerhouse like we thought they were. You know, so I don't know if you've heard of the Evergrande fiasco that they have going over there. So uh, from my understanding, Evergrande's a big real estate investment company that builds these massive skyscrapers condominiums right and so there's been a lot of disbanded projects there's these ghost towns that, that they've shown videos of and stuff and so so what they found out is that this company is defaulting on its payments and so the biggest this is like this is a big big company that a lot of the chinese economy is based off of can't make its own payments is defaulting and is going to go bankrupt. So there's not as much money in China as, as we were made to believe. Right. And so you start to say, well, 
if China's not good and, and, you know, we see what's happened in America, like they just defaulted on their debt and stuff. I mean, this, this brings you back to where is my money safe? Right. <laughs> and you start to go into, okay, well, there, there's gold and, and there's land and there's Bitcoin now. Right. And so I, I just, I encourage everybody to, to just, you know, put a time to or put the time aside and just like really sit down and say like, Hey, how can I, how can I steer myself, you know, financially over over the next little bit right because your government's not going to do it for you i'll oh, emphasize no. that <laughs> i've yes we've really seen what governments will do right during this pandemic and uh i find it very frightening i i find it frightening that governments do ridiculous things and infringe on your rights and people want to justify it or like defend them you don't need to defend them the point is you should be critical of government always. It's, politicians are not people to worship. This is this should never have been a thing, right? There used to be a separate thing where you had your politicians that you, you had to deal with and then you could manage what you did at home or at church or whatever. There's sort of two aspects to your life. There was the one that you're forced to adopt because everyone else was and then there was you had your own opportunity to live your own way and i think you know jordan peterson's talked about this ad, ad nauseum but it's just like people have have this instinct to turn to something bigger than themselves and you know when you start putting that energy onto another human it gets real dangerous real fast that's like worshiping a false god when you know other religions usually talk about that and that's we're the same. We haven't evolved over what like two hundred thousand years, so we should probably, you know, learn from our past and try not to repeat it. Although we always do. And uh, yeah, it's something like right. We we like to turn the blind eye a little bit too much, right? Instead of really saying, "Hey, we're we're not the perfect species by by any means," right? And yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I guess it goes back, to, like you know. Who knows what happens in the next couple of years as, as our generations and the ones younger us start to take hold of government, you know, because we, we have different progressive minds, good and bad. You know, like sometimes, as you said, it can be extreme. It can be over overpowering, overwhelming or, you know, sometimes just straight out annoying. And you're just like, OK, I'd rather just mute myself from everything than try to even partake in this conversation of politics at this point. I think that's how maybe a lot of people are. Yeah. But you can't run away from it right it's no no you can't life. yeah no you can't you. yeah 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 and, and i think that's the thing is that we have to almost agree that that nothing is going to be perfect right like we're not we can't say that this law is in place or or this system's in place and it's going to work for the next 10 years or the next 100 years right we have to kind of adapt for that or even this particular economy works in this part of the world therefore it must work in this part of the world you know that's that not that's not necessarily a, a true thing right and i mean I could understand that to, to, to some degree. I mean, I, I grew up uh, multiple places across the states, like, you know, West Virginia, Louisiana, Texas. So I've, I've seen different cultures that have kind of like mainly blue collared, mainly like, you know, you work for the bread on your table and, and that's kind of your life. Like you don't see outside of your church, your, your small community. So when you have big ideas come in that are really starting to push the boundaries of what they're comfortable with. I mean, it's it's that flight or flight response at that point for some people. It's it's 
you know, it's how dare you try to vaccinate me or how dare you try to question my gun ownership or how dare you try to question my rights as, as an individual or whatever it happens to be. And I think what you find with most people is if you actually sit down and talk to people, it, it, like by the end of the conversation, everybody's in agreement, right? Like everybody wants to be healthy. Everybody wants to be happy and everybody wants to do the things that they want to do. Right. And so it, it's, it's so, I don't know. It's almost like uh, an artifact, right. From our evolution, this kind of like peacocking defense that we almost feel like we need to be segregated segregated into groups because our pack protects ourselves right this is how we survive i don't know if those humans are a threat if they're going to steal my slice of the, of, of the mammoth or my slice of the deer whatever it happens to be right so you know i just think that we have to be more aware of that as humans right we have to say hey we are flawed we're, we're we tend to be jealous we tend to be envy of each other that's okay that's normal human emotions it's it's how do we act upon those do we go and rape and kill and pillage or do we say hey how do we make this more accessible for everybody and evolve technologies from there forth right you know and, and beautiful example i guess as as you know as much as the pandemic sucked there were some beautiful things that came out of it is right we we realized how to communicate now not everything needed to be in person you know that got it you know good and bad right but um being more conscious of our health Right. Both how we interact with each other, what we touch, what we eat, kind of just being that kind of sense. I think that it was an epiphany for a lot of people. Obviously, a lot of people have, you know, disbarred it, have said it's, it's whatever. But for the most part, for the people I've talked to, like, or I've, I've encountered is, is everybody has kind of evolved their, their life in some shape or fashion. Right. Some people have, have found out, hey, I don't want an office desk job or I don't want to like. You know, I want to change careers, right? This is what I actually, this is what's going to be good for me or picked up a hobby or just something that's been, been able to address mental health, right? Have actually been able to take the time to say, I don't need to spend two hours at the lab and only work for them, right? I can spend these two hours working on myself mentally, working on myself spiritually, working on myself physically, financially, whatever it happens to be. And, and so you know, maybe, I don't know, I'm optimistic, but maybe, you know, we kind of realized like the, this, this rat race that we had before was toxic to us as humans, right? It, we're not made to, to grind from the nine to five all the time. We're really made to work as a community when it comes down to it. So, you know, you, you lighten the burden, you, you kind of say, hey, here's my four or five productive hours. I'm done today. I'm going home instead of I'm forced to be here. You know, I mean, that's that's my opinion on, on that. I'm obviously spoiled in academia, but... I totally agree. And people don't even know why we work 9 to 5. Like, people don't know their history. They just are like, this is the way things are. No, there was one guy that did it for his business. It was Henry Ford. We have a five-day, 9 to 5 work week because of Henry Ford because he needed three shifts a day. Eight-hour shifts. They're 24 hours in a day. So they could work around the clock for him. And then the rest of America adopted it because they were so fucking productive. And then they arranged the school system around it. And then within a few years, it was pervasive. And there was one dude that had an idea that spread like wildfire, right? And a lot of the things we just think are built into society started that way. And 
I like to know why they started and I question it all the time, like constantly reevaluating what I'm doing. Is this the best way to do it? Whatever, right? And all the time you run into opposition from people like, no, this is how things are done. How, like, why do you think we could do it differently? And I'm like, because we did do it differently. This person had us do it this way. You know, now we have different circumstances. Maybe we should look at it from a different angle. But again, it's like most people want to stay with what's familiar. And it is scary to, you know, to tackle the unknown. You know, that's part of being human as well, right? Yeah, and I mean, it goes back to it. You got you to gotta evolve or go extinct, right? You're either going to be you know, remembered as somebody with an old mindset or someone who, who led the progression of, of the human race. So, Yeah. Well, I think this is a, a great time to put a pin in it. And continue later. I thought this was a great conversation, Tyler. I think you have a brilliant mind. And I love the way that you can sort of apply your experiences in one domain across to other domains and really abstract ideas out. You know, I love that you're a family man. You can balance, you know, having that you know, well, I think what it is to be a human and really have that connection with your family and your community that way and still be as productive as anyone I know in the lab at work. So I, I think that's very admirable. I don't know if I could pull it off uh, the same way. Appreciate that. So, <laughs> thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Tyler. Anytime. All right. This has been Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis. More to come.